This is Mark, who is the pen for the Apostle Peter. And these are the words that he writes in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, that is the boy, to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often has cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, that is the Father, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd, saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and neither enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But he, Jesus, took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he, Jesus, said to them, his disciples, his disciples, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, there is a major, major contrast between what we saw last week on the Mount of Transfiguration and what we see this week in the valley. I mean, as you think back to last week's text, that was a mountaintop experience. What we see this morning in the text before us is a valley experience. Last week, we saw the kingdom of God on display. This week, we'll see the kingdom of Satan on display. Last week, we saw the Son of God radiantly glorified. This week in our text, we will see another son which is terribly demonized. Last week, we saw confused disciples who lacked understanding. This week in our text, we see defeated disciples who lack power. Last week, we saw a lesson about the future. This week, we see a lesson about faith. Last week, we saw a display of divine power. And this week, we see a directive for human prayer. Major contrast, major contrast between last week's text and our text for this morning. You see, like all mountaintop experiences, James, Peter, and John's experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was very short-lived. It was a foretaste of the future glory and kingdom that was to come, that is to come, but has not yet come. It's not yet a present reality. 
Similar to Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai, Jesus descends Mount Hermon to find his disciples in a state of absolute and utter confusion. There are valuable lessons that we learn as we descend from the Mount of Transfiguration into the valley of life in a fallen world. There are three main points on your outline this morning. I would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. Number one is this. Write it down. You'll never outgrow your need for Jesus. And you say, Pastor, that is so Bible 101. And I say, yeah, but we'll, most of us will forget it between right now and the time we walk out the glass doors today. We never outgrow our need for Jesus. In verses 14 through 18 of our text, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they, they return from Mount Hermon to find the other nine disciples in quite a conundrum. A great crowd has surrounded this little band of brothers as they're uh, taunted, by, uh, taunted and heckled by argumentative uh, scribes. You see, if the scribes can't get Jesus in a corner, they'll certainly try to capitalize uh, on an opportunity to criticize and mock his disciples. We see that clearly in our text. Bless their little hearts, the disciples oftentimes find themselves in a crisis when Jesus isn't present. Right? We've seen that already in our, in our study of Mark multiple times. As a matter of fact, just a few chapters back in Mark chapter 6... After feeding the 5,000, Jesus sent his disciples out ahead of him in a small little boat. And the disciples find themselves in a maritime crisis. They find themselves in a, in a, in a sea-tossed, weather-turned, uh, sour hour upon the sea. Here in our text, we'll see the disciples try to continue the ministry of Jesus without him being present. And it doesn't turn out well. Jesus had only for a short period of time, been absent from the disciples, at least the nine, but in that short time, those nine had temporarily forgotten their constant need for him, their constant need of him, which was for them and is for us always a recipe for disaster. When we try to go at it alone, it's always a recipe for disaster. We don't ever outgrow our moment for moment, moment by moment, rather, need for Jesus you see, there's an immediate shift in the focus. As Jesus returns from the, uh, from the Mount of Transfiguration, as he descends from Mount Hermon, Jesus catches the eye of the crowds. Now, the drama between the disciples and the scribes stills for a moment as the crowd, greatly amazed to see Jesus, runs toward him to greet him. You know, it's interesting, the word amazed there, as it's probably translated in your Bible, has the idea of being astonished, even overwhelmed. And so here you have the great crowd as they see Jesus now returning from the Mount of Transfiguration. And the crowd is said to be amazed, astonished, overwhelmed. Some have said that the crowd's amazement was due to uh, the fact that Jesus' countenance may have still been radiant and glowing from his transfiguration. Uh, but I would submit to you, if that were the case, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to charge or command his disciples to go and tell no one what had happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, Jesus comes down and his face is glowing. That's telling everyone, is it not? Jesus' command to go and tell no one back in verse 9 of chapter 9 would have been unnecessary if that were the case. Furthermore, when Moses descended Mount Sinai, after having seen the backside of God's glory, his glowing face and countenance made people fearful to even come near him. 
I think the crowd's amazement here is simply due to the fact that Jesus' appearance was unexpected. But for Jesus, it was no time for a meet and greet. Remember, the crowds were not a sign of success. The the crowds were not seen uh, as as a sign of ministry success to Jesus. As a matter of fact, the crowds were oftentimes seen as an obstacle to the gospel going forward in Jesus' ministry. The crowds represent the intrigued but unbelieving masses. And so Jesus bypasses the clamoring excitement, and instead he cuts right to the heart of the matter. He cuts right to the heart of the issue at hand. Look at verse 16 in your Bible there. Jesus asked the scribes, what are you arguing with them about? That's the disciples. The scribes are arguing with the disciples when Jesus descends Mount Hermon here. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you have a question, direct it to me. What is Jesus doing here? Well, I'll submit to you that Jesus is clearly asserting himself as the authority on the scene. If you have questions, direct your questions to me. I am the authority on the scene. Just like the disciples, we need, when Jesus is uh, not with us, uh, to uh, be in his presence when we're oftentimes confronted by a hostile world. Just like his disciples, we need Jesus when we're confronted by a lost and hostile world. But before the scribes can even offer a reply to Jesus' question, the voice of a desperate father cries out, calls out amid the silence. Look at verses 17 through 19 there. The father says, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, because they were here, to cast it out, and they were not able For those of you who are parents here this morning, perhaps grandparents, you can imagine how distraught this father must have been over the condition of his son. His son wasn't just ill, his son was assaulted by an evil spirit. It's hard for us to place ourselves in that type of situation contextually because we don't see it uh, nearly as prevalent in our day. Father has hope that if he can just get his son to Jesus, then Jesus will be able to restore his child. But when Jesus isn't present, the father appeals to the disciples to exercise power that is known to belong to Jesus. And so herein lies the the crux of the argument between the disciples and the scribes. You see, in Jesus' absence, the disciples tried to exercise an ability that had been previously granted to them. If you can remember back to Mark chapter 3, just let your mind kind of catalog back there. Mark writes that Jesus, Jesus appointed the twelve so they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Okay, That's why Jesus appointed the twelve. And then just three chapters later in chapter 6, Jesus sent the twelve out two by two and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Mark even goes on and tells us that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and needed to be healed. You see, from a human perspective, from our human perspective, the disciples had very good reason to believe that they would be able to cast out the unclean spirit from this tormented child because they had done it before. They had done it before. And so the question is, why were they unable now? Why why failure this time around? Well, 
the disciples needed to learn a very important but hard lesson. It's a lesson that we all need to learn. You see, in Jesus' absence, the disciples had developed an attitude of unbelief. In Jesus' absence, the disciples had developed an attitude of unbelief. They became self-reliant. They became self-confident. They thought they could carry out the ministry of Jesus in their own strength, in their own power. They were trying to act on behalf of Jesus apart from the presence of Jesus. And they failed. The problem wasn't that the disciples didn't try. The problem is that they tried in their own strength and in their own power. You ever been there? Some of you can relate as you're shaking your head yes. Yeah, we've all been there. The desire is to trust Jesus. The desire is to walk with Jesus. The desire is to commune and fellowship with Jesus. But somewhere along the way, we become self-reliant. We become self-confident, which is functional unbelief. We all have a sinful propensity to look to ourselves as our own source of sufficiency. Our lack of humility and practical unbelief is demonstrated when we falsely presume that we can live out the Christian life on our own. When we say, I don't need any help. I got it under control. Again, the delusion of self-sufficiency is practical unbelief. I see this often in my children, and I uh, asked my son uh, the other day if I could use this. I don't make a habit of uh, using illustrations that bring my family into them. And uh, when I do, I want to make sure that I have uh, talked with them prior. And uh, this is very general here, but, but I have talked to my, to my children, specifically my son here. But, but I see this oftentimes in my children. And I fear that this practical unbelief is at times a result of my poor model because I have reinforced it in front of them. I mean, I've watched them from time to time express frustration over a particular task. And then when I ask them if they need any help, how do they reply? Every one of you who are parents know the answer to this. No, Dad, I got it. I can do it on my own. I don't need your help. Well, sometimes they figured it out, but other times, frustration paints their little faces before they either toss the towel in and quit or they surrender and ask for help. You know what? I am my son, and I am my daughter. The disciples needed to learn, and so do we, that we cannot live the Christian life on our own. We can't function as a conduit of Jesus' power if we're fooled into believing that we don't need his constant presence. Sometimes we have to learn that lesson challenging ways. But even when we blow it, even when we fall flat on our self-reliant faces... Jesus disciplines us as sons if we know him savingly. He disciplines us as daughters, but he bids us to boldly approach the throne of grace where we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Jesus disciplines his children when they display practical unbelief, when they display self-reliance and self-confidence, the attitude of, I don't need you, I can do it on my own. But even in his discipline, he sweetly bids us come to the throne of grace and receive power and mercy in your time of need. I love that. I love that. 
We can humbly repent, and we should humbly repent of our sinful unbelief, but we can rejoice that we have a sufficient Savior who has never failed. One who has been tempted in every way, yet without sin, so we fix our eyes on Him. Like the disciples, we need Jesus when we fail. We need His grace. We need His sustaining power. We never outgrow our moment-by-moment need for Jesus' presence in our lives. Write this down, number two. You never outgrow your need for faith. And you say, Jesus, that's, or a pastor rather, that sounds so Bible 101. And I say, exactly it is. But most of us will forget it before we ever walk out the glass doors today. You never outgrow your need for faith. How does Jesus respond to his disciples? Well, look at verse 19 there in your Bibles. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him, that is the young boy, bring him to me. I would suggest to you that Jesus was absolutely heartbroken over his disciples' unbelief. I mean, here Jesus has been, day by day, moment by moment, as Jesus has lived with and walked with his disciples, trying to encourage their faith in him, demonstrating that he is trustworthy and faithful, demonstrating that he, though they are having a hard time grasping, it is the fulfillment to all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed down the redemptive road to him, the Messiah, who has now come. Yet they still struggle with unbelief. I think this breaks the heart of our Savior. You look at Jesus' words here, oh, faithless generation. What is Jesus saying here? I think Jesus is telling his disciples that you are acting in a way that is indistinguishable from the rest of this generation. I mean, the way you're acting in this moment is like unbelievers. Oh, faithless generation. And then he follows it up by saying, how, how long am I to be with you? In other words, guys, will you, will you ever learn? One commentator says that Jesus' words here express a sense of loneliness as the sole believer in a world of unbelief. But Jesus doesn't write his doubting, hard-hearted, self-confident disciples off. Aren't you glad? Because we are doubting, hard-hearted, self-confident disciples. Jesus is gracious and he's patient with them. He calls their sin, sin. He calls a spade a spade. But he's patient and gentle and kind and gracious with his disciples. Not only do we see Jesus' grace and patience, but we see his compassion. Look, he says, bring him, that is the boy, to me. I mean, the character of God is on display in this moment here in the text. Look back at your Bible there, verse 20. The boy's condition earlier described by the father becomes a reality before Jesus' very eyes here, before the disciples' very eyes. Mark writes, and they brought the boy to him, that is to Jesus, and when he, Jesus, saw the spirit, sorry, when the spirit saw him, Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell down on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus, seeing this terrorized young child, asks his father a question in verse 21. The question is, how long has this been happening to him? 
How long has your son been like this? How long has this been the condition? How long has this been the state of affairs with your son? The boy's father replies, from childhood. And he adds, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. There are a few things I think that are noteworthy here. First, this conversation between Jesus and the father is omitted. It's absent in both Matthew and Luke's account of the story. And you may or may not know that, and if you did know that, you may be asking yourself the question, if you didn't know that, you may be asking yourself the question, now, why is that? Well, I think the reason behind that is, is because both Matthew and Luke's account focus more on the miracle restoration, what Jesus can do, whereas Mark's account focuses on the faith, what Jesus is, who Jesus is. Secondly, it's important to note that Jesus didn't ask the father how long his son had been suffering because he was unaware. It's not that Jesus needed some more information to assess the situation. Jesus wasn't asking for an answer to a question that he did not already know the answer to. I mean, Jesus could have cast the evil spirit out of this young boy with a single word. But as horrific as this child's agony is, there is a much greater foe in this story than the evil spirit. Now that I have your attention, that greater opponent is unbelief. There's a greater opponent in this story than the evil spirit that is tormenting this young boy. And that greater opponent is the spirit of unbelief. Jesus asked the father how long his son had been afflicted in order to draw out the man's faith. The third thing I want to note here is the purpose of Satan is to destroy the image of God in man. This evil spirit would have loved to have killed this young boy. I mean, the father even notes here that the evil spirit has often thrown him into fire and sought to plunge him into water. Why? To kill him. The attacks on this young boy serve to show how radical and how real the struggle is between Satan, who is the destroyer of life, and Jesus, who is the giver of life. Look at the Father's request at the end of verse 22 in your Bible there. The Father says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Have compassion on us and help us. Remember, this father had brought his son to Jesus to be restored, and the disciples, acting on Jesus' behalf in a moment of self-reliance, had failed to be able to complete that task. They failed to be able to heal this young boy. The disciples' failure had led this father to doubt that Jesus himself would be able to offer much help. Do you catch that? But if you can do anything, I know your disciples can't do anything, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, there's a challenging principle, I think, in the text here. Okay? And that challenging principle is this. Write it down somewhere in the margin and ponder over it this week. Here's the reality. Sin never takes place in a vacuum. Sin never takes place in a vacuum. Stated conversely, sin always splatters. Sin always splatters. 
You see, the father in the story here associated the disciples' failure with Jesus' inability. Our sin is oftentimes a reflection both on Jesus and on the gospel message. One pastor said, the Christian's conduct, his words or her words, his ability or inability to cope with the demands of life are used as a yardstick or a, a measuring stick not only to judge him, but also to judge his Savior. We are a reflection upon our Savior. The disciples' sinful unbelief caused this father, in this desperate moment, to be shaken at the core as to whether or not Jesus could really help him. Whether Jesus could really offer aid in his time of need. Look at how Jesus responds to the father in verse 23. Jesus says, if you can, exclamation point, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. I mean, what Jesus just did here in this little statement, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. What Jesus just did here is he flipped the Father's question. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you can isn't the issue. The issue is, do you believe? That's the question. That's the issue. In other words, everything depends on your ability to believe, not on my ability to act. Of course I can. The problem is not divine unwillingness or inability. The problem is human unbelief. The problem is sinful self-reliance. The problem is self-consumed self-confidence. That's the problem. It's functional unbelief. The problem isn't, can I do anything? The problem is, do you believe? That's the issue. That's the issue. As a matter of fact, when we turn the page to chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, Jesus will remind us in chapter 10, verse 27, that all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. Now, a quick note here. Verse 23 might be one of the, if not the, most abused verses in the entire Bible. Let your eyes find verse 23 there. This might be one of the, if not the, single most abused verses in the entire Bible. Many people, particularly those who subscribe to a prosperity gospel theology, a name-it-and-claim-it theology, tear this verse from its contextual boundaries, and they try to apply it in a way that Jesus never intended that it be applied. You see, this verse is not teaching that you can have whatever you want if you can just conjure up enough faith. That would put you in the control seat if you had enough faith. We are always called always called to rest our faith in God, but you cannot go any further than God's clear promises. Another way to think about it is this. All things are possible for him who believes, but all things must be on the menu. Catch that? All things are possible for him who believes, but all things must be on the menu. Just another way, another way of saying all things must be according to God's will. 
So we don't seek to pull verse 23 out of its contextual boundaries. We don't seek to apply it outside of its contextual limitations. Jesus is not telling us that if we have enough faith, we can name it and claim it. We can have whatever we want here. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Now look at the father's reply to Jesus in verse 24. Mark writes, immediately the father of the child cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. I love this. What a, what a humble cry here. Notice that the father applies Jesus' rebuke of the disciples to himself. Jesus rebuked the disciples for their unbelief. The father applies the rebuke to the disciples to himself. He realizes in, is, he realizes in this moment that I also lack faith. I also am demonstrating unbelief. He says, help my unbelief. You see, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. True faith is always aware, is always cognizant of of how small and oftentimes inadequate it is. The Father's faith was no doubt trembling and imperfect, but it was real. I do believe. Help, Help my unbelief. You see, trust and doubt, hope and fear are oftentimes mixed in the very same heart. In both Matthew and Luke's account of this story, Jesus tells his disciples that faith as small as a mustard seed is effective. Even small faith is effective. Weak, frail, fragile, feeble, and erring as it may be, we must employ our faith. Anchor it to, tether it to the object, in this case, the person of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't wait until we have perfect faith to exercise it. That day will never come this side of eternity. And so what do we do with our unbelief? Well, we turn from it. We repent of it. We take it to Christ as we do all other sins, and we ask for grace to trust him more God, help me to trust you more. The bridge between frail humanity and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ is faith. Let me repeat that. The bridge between frail humanity and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ is faith. Faith is the hand that receives grace. How does Jesus respond to this father's faith? Look back at your Bible there in verses 25 through 27. Mark writes this. And when Jesus saw the crowd, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it, that is the evil spirit, came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them, that's the crowd, said, mockingly, jeering, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. You see this evil spirit, which is too difficult for Jesus' disciples to cast out, is not too difficult for Jesus. With a mere word, it departs. Satan is strong, he's busy, and he's active, but Jesus is greater by far. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and commands it to come out, and that's exactly what it does. 
King Jesus rules and reigns. Every principality and every principality submits to his word. Now, let me ask this pointed question. Do you? When Jesus, when King Jesus speaks, every principality submits to his word. The question is, do we? Do we? As the demon leaves this boy with one last fitful rage, the boy is said to be left like a corpse on the ground. To all the onlookers, he appeared to be dead. Again, this may have even been a laughable moment for the scribes. I mean, the scribes could be sitting there, you know, snickering to themselves, saying, Jesus killed the boy. Way to go. Way to go, Jesus. But any sneering would have been short-lived. Give verse 27. Mark says, but Jesus took him, that is the boy by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Sound like familiar language? He arose. Just like Jesus, and just like every single one of you that know him by faith, will one day rise. This young boy arose. It's interesting to note that Peter, James, and John who had just previously asked back in uh, chapter 9, look there in your Bible, it probably is just on the next page, you may have to turn back to a page there, but uh, look back to chapter 9 here for a second, verse 10. Mark tells us, so they, that's Peter, James, and John, kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I love that. Here's James, Peter, and John. They're questioning what it meant to be resurrected as they're trekking down the Mount of Transfiguration. And I think Jesus just provides a very clear object lesson on the meaning and the necessity of his own death and resurrection to break Satan's power by doing it effectually in this young boy. Satan is no match for our Savior's power. And sin is no match for our Savior's blood. Mark it down, you can take it to the bank. The disciples also saw a clear demonstration of what faith looks like when it's resting wholly in Jesus. Friends, let me encourage you, let me remind you, as I myself need the encouragement and the reminding that we never outgrow our need for faith. Lastly this morning, number three on your outline is this, you never outgrow your need for prayer. And you may be sitting there saying to yourself, but pastor, this sounds so Bible 101. And I say, I know, dear friends, because many of us will forget it before we ever leave today. Myself included. The story ends with Jesus gathered together privately in a house with his disciples Homes are oftentimes the place where further instruction and revelation in Mark's gospel take place. Jesus oftentimes retires back to a, to a home and then he'll interpret what has just taken place. He'll, he'll further teach. He'll give further instruction to the disciples. Mark writes here, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? It's a good question, right? I mean, Jesus, we, we've done it before. You had given us power before when you sent us out two by two. We, we've done it previously. And we tried to do it this time, but we were, we were not able. Our attempts were ineffective, but you were able to do it. And so the question is, why weren't we able to do it again? Why could we not cast it out? And he, Jesus, said to them, this kind 
cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see, Jesus explains to the disciples that their unbelief was demonstrated how? Their unbelief was demonstrated by their lack of prayer. When we try to go it alone, apart from prayerful God dependence, we demonstrate self-reliance and sinful unbelief. The disciples thought that the ministry gift they had been given or the ministry gift they had received for casting out evil spirits was under their own control. They thought they could exercise it at will. And so they thought, oh, well, we don't even need to pray. I mean, it's, we can just do it. It's like a kazam. And Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. They didn't even think to call on God for help. They thought they could do it all by themselves without need for help. They had forgotten that there needed to be a radical dependence on God if his power was to course through their lives. And the exact same truth is, is there for us today. There needs to be a radical dependence on God if his, if his power, if his effectual power is to be at work in our lives. You see, faith that brings power is faith that prays. Faith that brings power is faith that prays. Power on earth comes through a praying faith in Jesus Christ. Where there is no prayer, there is no power. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Faith and prayer declare that spiritual power is not intrinsic to ourselves, but it is found in God alone. We have nothing to glory in apart from God's grace. None of our wisdom is our own wisdom. None of our own strength is our own strength. None of our gifts or talents or abilities are intrinsic to us. They are not our own. We have nothing that we have not been given by God. And all of these abilities lack their power if we set out to exercise them apart from faith-filled dependence on Jesus, demonstrated by prayer. Demonstrated by prayer. And so I would ask you, friends, in what areas of life are you demonstrating practical unbelief? Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe it's in your ministry. Maybe it's in your use of spiritual gifts or your evangelism or your discipleship. It's, it's that thought in any of these areas and a myriad of others that I can do it on my own. You see, some people mistakenly think that God is, uh, he, that he doesn't like to be troubled by our constant coming and asking. You track with me here. So, some people think God doesn't want to be bothered by me. I mean, he's doing a million things at once. He's, he's sustaining the universe by the very word of his power. He doesn't have time for all my constant coming and asking. Friends, I would submit to you in reality, the way to trouble God is not to come at all. The way to trouble God is not to come at all. And our lack of coming isn't due to our lack of time. John Piper said this, he said, One of the greatest uses of Instagram and Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not for a lack of time. That stings. We could replace Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with numerous other things. If we do not abide in prayer, we'll abide in temptation. Specifically, the temptation to think that we possess power in ourselves apart from God. You see, the disciples had to learn a hard lesson here, a hard but important lesson. 
And that lesson is that apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember, for most of us, truths in the ear are oftentimes forgotten, but lessons learned by painful experience are oftentimes remembered for a lifetime. Friends, we never outgrow our hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment need for Jesus. We we never outgrow uh, our need for faith. We never outgrow our need for prayer. Let me just give you, as we land the plane here, some super brief lessons for life. Write these down. If you've not written anything else down to this point, write these down. Number one, I need to let my weakness drive me to his strength. Turn that into a prayer request this week. I need to let my weakness drive me to his strength. Number two, I need to let my impotence, my impotence drive me to his omnipotence. Turn that into a prayer request this week. Number three, I need to let my limitations drive me to his unlimited resources. Number four, I need to let my humility drive me to his sufficiency. And then let me give you a freebie here. No charge, no cost. Number five, I need to let my sinful disbelief drive me to his mercy and grace. I need to let my sinful disbelief drive me to his mercy and grace. Friends, for some of you, you undoubtedly walked in this morning with shaken faith, doubts, and disbelief. Faith that might in still quiet quiet moments feel like it's hanging by a thread. Well, let me encourage you to cry out just like the Father in our story for increased faith. Ask Jesus to shower you with his grace. Ask Jesus to fill your heart and mind with his precious and magnificent and unerring promises. Let me leave you with one of those precious promises. Weak and weary, poor and needy, tired and at times trembling Christian, your acceptance with God is not based on your ability to have perfect faith, but rather on his perfect faithfulness toward us. Paul writing to Timothy said, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the challenges here. Uh, Lord, thank you for the fact that we can distill your word down to its very simplistic uh, essence and we can apply it to our lives. God, we, we need to be reminded of simple truths. So often I need to be reminded of simple truths. Uh, Lord, help us in our sinful disbelief. I pray that we would have humble, contrite spirits, that we would confess it to you for the very sin that it is. It's cosmic treason, And that we would uh, be welcomed to the throne room of mercy and grace where we find help in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our intercessor. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who sits mediating and advocating for us this morning that we might have access to that very throne room. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.